Let us pray once again. Oh Lord, we do praise that uh, as a church we may rise indeed and proclaim your truth and, and shine our light and, and be the church you want us to be. That uh, we will reflect Jesus Christ and especially tonight, Lord, as we come to your word, that you will give us a vision for what lies behind and for what lies ahead. For your past redemption and the future glory that awaits all the true children of God. We pray, O oh God, that you will grant us a vision for that as a church. To live by grace and, and that grace then fuels a life that is transformed. Lead me now as I, the meditation of my mouth and of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. We pray that you will effectually apply your word to us tonight. And once again, we do remember Samuel and Erica. Be with them, Lord, in this particular moment as they await a new life coming into the world of their daughter. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a child whose name was uh, Craig, and his father had brought home a 12-year-old boy. This 12-year-old boy, his name was Roger. His parents had died from a drug overdose. And sadly, there was no one to take care of Roger. So Craig's parents decided to raise him as their own child. At first, you can imagine it was difficult for this son, this new son adopted, to adjust to his new home. Several times a day, Craig would see his stepbrother and hear his parents saying, Roger, no, no. That is not how we behave in this family. Roger, you don't scream or fight or hurt other people to get what you want. No, Roger, we, we expect you to show respect in this family. And obviously in time, Roger began to change. Did he have to make those changes to become part of the family? No. He was already part of the family. He had been adopted in the family. He was already part of that family because of the graces of Craig's father. But the question is, did he have to work hard because he was in the family? And you bet he did. There were adjustments to be made in his behavior. And it was tough for Rogers to change in the beginning. And it required a lot of work. But he was motivated by gratitude for the amazing love he had received by this new family. And so, friends, we might have a lot of hard work now that the Spirit adopts us in the family by grace, absolutely. But we still, there's hard work in sanctification, certainly. Um, not to become a son or a daughter of our Heavenly Father. We are already being adopted. But it's the grace of God in adoption that leads us now to faithfulness in the Christian life. Every time you start to, however, revert back to the old addictions of sin, the old nature, the Holy Spirit will say to you, just like in this story, no, that is not how we act in this spiritual family, the church. And so friends, 
We now come to this brief verses, verse 11 to 15 at the end of chapter 2. And we want to focus upon the grace of God that we have seen in past weeks. Titus, we saw, is the part of this. We are going through Titus since several weeks, and we've seen that it's part of these pastoral epistles like Timothy, which deals with matters involving how do we care for souls in the church. And Paul has written this letter late in his ministry. Last time we saw a particular instruction to different age groups. For those who were not here, I invite you to go and listen to the recording, Grace for God's Family, and the, the different uh, ways in which in the family, in your natural family, in the church, and in, in your workplace, you show that grace by the way you behave. Now, the basis of this instruction is laid out for us in verse 11 to 15 of chapter 2. So we want to zoom in these few verses... Because they are crucial to the overall argument of the entire letter to Titus. Paul ends this chapter with this overarching goal for every one of us in the church. That we've seen different categories, different age groups. And now Titus, the pastor, must keep on the forefront these categories as he preaches. That the gospel doctrine that we saw uh, last time should produce good works in the life of the Christian. And the main theme of the letter, again, we have already explored, really finds its apex in these verses. That the grace of God is the fuel, the source, and the hope that you vertically get from God through what He did through Jesus Christ. And now horizontally your good works and the way you behave in the church and the way you behave in your work shows the truth the truthfulness of the grace you have received the conduct with which you present your faith is possible only in light of what the lord has done for you of a clear understanding of the grace of god and also what he will do when he comes back for his people the main key to this verse 11 to 15 is that Christ first came and died to make you holy. You are part of His church so that you may be blameless when He comes again to get you. That is what we want to see in this verses 11 to 15. First thing you notice is that grace appears has already appeared. You look back at the cross. You look back at the grace of God that He has done for you. In verse 11, shows us that God, Christ saved us, but with a purpose, to be holy. Verse 11, for the motivation. Starts with that for. The motivation of all these uh, behavioral suggestions for different age groups that we saw last Sunday night. The grace of God bringing salvation, offering salvation, literally the grace of salvation or the salvific grace. Either it's a grace that leads to salvation or in tune with Ephesians 2, chapter, eight, chapter 2, verse 8, grace is the instrument of your salvation. Saving grace is in view here. The unmerited favor and the blessing that you can receive from God at the moment that you come to Jesus Christ for salvation. That He delivers you from sin and He grants you now eternal life. In other words, the motivation to obey as a Christian 
It is not within you. It is and remains the foundation of what Christ has done for you as the grace of God has appeared, our text says. The grace of God has been manifested, has been revealed, has come forward to all men, all sort of people. Offered to either appear to all men, like my translation has it, New King James. Or the other translation might say, bring salvation to all men. However, I think the New King James is more rightly, because if not, it's suggesting everyone in the world will be saved. Was that, or that Christ died for every human being, even those who never believed in Him, which is very unlikely in light of other New Testament teachings. But still the point is this, that the grace of God that has been revealed, which now is available to everyone to see, not necessarily that everyone on this earth will believe and embrace it, Verse 12 teaches us of something. It trains us or instructs us. And when it says us, it means believers who have actually experienced this grace. Here's the intent of such gift of grace at salvation. Along with that grace comes a realization that should now be characterized by several things which ultimately point to repentance. First of all, you deny ungodliness. You renounce it. You make a conscience and purposeful, purposeful action of your will to deny it, to put it away. You give up anything that is contrary to true Christianity. Ungodliness. A godless way of behavior. Then we have worldly lusts. Worldly passions which we know are at enmity with God or are morally reprehensible according to His law. The sinful pleasures of the flesh, any kind of indulgent living, whether it's through addiction, whether it's through sex sexual immorality, we could call it the unholy trinity that is described for us in 1 John 2, 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. That is, must be given away, must be taken off, renounced it. On the contrary, you are called to now pursue three things. Live soberly. And we already saw this word over and over in Titus for the qualifications of elders and deacons, but also in the various age groups last evening service, to be self-controlled and both this uh, sound or sober mind that is discreet, that is temperate, that is full of wisdom. It means you show self-restraint in all things in life. That you're no longer now enslaved by anything carnal like this. But you now live, our text says, righteously, upright. That you remember this word we saw last evening service, the exhortation to workers last Sunday night. To be honest in all things, that not even the appearance of evil must be shown in our work, let alone just unjust weights and unjust measures. But here it applies to everyone. It's no longer just workers. It's this is how Christians are to behave godly, which means God-fearing. A person characterized by a constant devotion for God in this present world or present age. Which implies that you show this day after day. 
in your mundane activities that you still have to engage with this pagan world that surrounds you, you are still characterized by this godliness, by this renouncing ungodliness. That's what should characterize every true believer. That's why A.W. Tozer once says, All things moving toward God becomes more and more beautiful. However, those things that move away from God become more and more ugly. You see that? That God's grace is intended to leave you now to live holy lives. That is the natural outgrowth of a true person who has truly understood the grace of God. We saw weeks ago in John, you remember, we talked about the problem of legalism where the Sabbath discussion was there and the, the Jewish leaders were criticizing Jesus. They were making matters of Christian liberty into law. However, Titus warns us here of the opposite problem. And what is the opposite problem? Those who say you're being legalistic by addressing sin in the church. You've been legalistic by addressing my sin as if God's grace now is a license to sin. It's like saying, I know it's a sin, but God loves me. Friends, God's grace is not a cover-up for our unbridled liberty or so-called libertarianism of the antinomian. The one who lives without the law of God has a guideline for his Christian life. Friends, whoever uses this argument, even if it's a professing Christian, clearly does not know the Lord and has never experienced true saving grace. Or at least he has a great, great confusion here. All that he or she has done is to attach a Christian label to himself without having passed first from the door of the fold. Beloved, may we never turn the grace of God to a license to tolerate sin in our life. Because if we do... Our profession of faith is in jeopardy. And even not too far from us, I've been told of some of you that there are churches that are overemphasizing this idea. The believers just need to feed on the grace of God, free grace. We, you need to rest in Christ. Any focus on obedience or repentance or sanctification as requiring anything on your part, in their eyes, becomes almost a self-righteousness. But friends, that is wrong. I call this a heresy of the free grace. Paul here is clear. It is precisely the true experience of God's grace that teaches you something. And what does it teach you? The need to actively, actively fight sin in your life. Slain sin in your life. To progressively be led by the grace of God, yes, but through your also sanctification to become more and more conformed to the pattern of Scripture. That you don't blame God for your sin. Well, God made me this way. We should witness the power of sin and slavery to sin as something that now that you're in Christ has been broken to your life. It's broken that power. You have a new nature. Through a radical process of true conversion. That is why many people who claim to be Christian, but who are not showing these fruits of true conversion, are missing the point. You see, our broken, no matter how broken sin has broken our life, we have a now, now a new nature. And even our living flows from that new nature. 
A renewed nature, change. Now it's not a perfect change. It's not a perfect repentance. But it is a change. That you now live in self-denial and you positively seek to live holy lives. That is, friends, the, the, the required fruit of any true conversion. Just like when you think about education. For centuries, the goal of education has been to develop virtue, to make people gentlemen, not just to fill them with knowledge. That is the goal of education. That they wanted to shape the character. Today is no longer, sadly. But you see, in the Christian life, it should be this way. It doesn't remain your Christian life a blank sheet awaiting to be raptured to heaven. There is growth to happen. There's sanctification to be expected. That's why I become highly suspicious whenever I hear self-professing Christians telling me that this expectation for a changed life, this focus on repentance, it's legalistic. I mean, that is, that is a problem. Obviously, we still might avoid the other extreme. I, I do realize that sanctification remains the work of God's free grace. Yes, the Westminster Shorter Catechism in question 35 says uh, that sanctification is still God's work through His grace. We are renewed in the whole man after the image of God progressively as believers. We help each other in living godly lives and we should definitely motivate each other by teaching that through the wonder of God's saving grace, I am now what I should not be. Just like we sang, a wretched like me. Amazing grace to a wretched like me. It indeed, uh, divine grace enables your godly living. It is God enabling you to, through the Holy Spirit living in you, if you're a true child of God, to die to sin, to live to righteousness. So yes, God's kindness leads us to repentance we still go to this fountain of grace to find the strength to obey Him. But when you, when you fully understand the grace of God despite your sin, how it enables you by the power of the Spirit to live out, how can you not commit your whole life to obey Him? That is what I don't understand. How, how, how can we do less than walk worthily of our calling if we are truly received this grace? But you see, we are still called to obey. Someone has um, compared the work of sanctification is, it's like a father lifting up a log and you are the child who is lifting up the log with the father. Obviously, the divine element is there, but there's still an engaging in sanctification in ourself. That when, when grace and, 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 and resting in Christ becomes your only focus when you passively await God to sanctify you without you lifting a finger or you even get mad at people who try to help you see your issue. Friend, that is a huge problem. If it's even that, it becomes, if it's even a, a, a professional faith, it is a miserable at that. Friend, there's sin to be killed. Just teaching God's grace does not necessarily mean that we are living in God's will. And therefore, we better make sure how do we live and not just what we believe matches the two. It still doesn't deny our responsibility as Christians. That we, through the Spirit at work in us, we, yes, indeed, cooperate in sanctification. God's grace has appeared to teach us something, to deny godliness. 
to pursue righteousness. If all you do is denying righteousness and keep pursuing ungodliness, then I'm sorry. Never experience the true grace of God. Now let's look now at the second point. Not just look back. God's grace has appeared. But now you look forward. Verse 13 to the, the end of our text. Verse 13 to 15. Glory will appear. Now we look forward. You have been saved. You look back at the cross. But you now look forward to eternity future. That Jesus will appear to hopefully find us zealous for good works. Verse 13. Paul wants to end this section with a, a praise, a doxology. As you seek to live godly lives, you do so not just looking back to the grace of God that has appeared, but also while you are looking for or awaiting forward, this is something you expectantly set your mind upon. And what is it? The blessed hope. Hope is, uh, friends, something that you will expectantly wait for with confidence. Not just a general hope, but a happy and blessed hope for the saints, for the true believers to be fulfilled in the coming glory of heaven. This is how Christians are called for century, the blessed hope. First Peter 1.3 says, a living hope through the resurrection both the resurrection of Christ, but also the glorious appearing, the, 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 the return of Christ. I was watching a cartoon with my daughter, and this cartoon has this uh, Queen of England coming to visit a uh, 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 children's school. Okay, Now, if the Queen of England is coming to visit our school, everyone has to prepare and to be his best for that day to meet the Queen of England. That... It would be a shame to the whole school if one of the persons in that little school is found unprepared for the day that the Queen of England shows up. Right? Well, friends, it's the same thing with the glorious appearance of Jesus Christ. We are making preparations so that we are found not wanting. That the glorious appearing is the same thing as this blessed hope. Jesus will appear in splendor at His second coming. And this time not to save, but to judge. And the judgment will begin at the house of God, friends. Jesus refers to the final day of the Lord, the ultimate fulfillment and realization of the hope as the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, comes on earth. Look at these words right there in our text. The great God and Savior. Verse 13. The great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not just God, but the great God. But also both this God and Savior. Who is He? Jesus Christ. Friend, if you need a more clear evidence of the fact that Jesus is indeed God, is this. I know that the Watchtower's translation of the Jehovah Witness arbitrarily separates the God and Savior, and it says, of the great God and of our Savior. As if Paul is referring to two different individuals, the Father and the Son. But in the Greek original, there is a rule, a grammatical rule here, that requires that the end connecting these two, God and Savior, there is only one article, it's not repeated before the second, Savior, it means that this, the, both of them always relate to the same person. 
That, me that means that Jesus is referring to God and Savior, both of them. That is grammar rule in Greek. And if what, what was meant to be two distinct persons, then you would have had to have two articles for both. But here you have one, and that means, friends, that the God and Savior is Jesus Christ, that He indeed is God. And the following, Jesus Christ explained those two nouns are referring to Him. It's all one reference to Jesus. And it's not just a respectful title. It's saying that He's divine. Therefore, friends, all the cults that want to deny and they claim that Jesus was not God, they come to this verse 13 of chapter 2 of Titus and they're rejecting the clear Word of God. But let's look at verse 14. Jesus gave Himself for us. That is the sum of the gospel. Literally means on your behalf. He gave himself on your behalf. Okay? At the cross. There is no clear passage in scripture for what we called substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? Let me unfold it for you. But this is the heart of the hope of the gospel. What is it? The fact is this, that sin has brought separation I'm telling you, direct hostility of God and hatred for you. Because you have broken His law. He is holy. And the way that you can be reconciled, there needs to be some sort of uh, agreement, almost in a war here, with the almighty, holy God of heaven and earth. The way you can reconcile yourself from that state of condition of enmity, because of your sin and your rebellion... Is that Christ takes upon his shoulders on the cross the penalty for your sins. That you should have gone to die on that cross. You are worthy to die on that cross. And you have this spotless Jesus Christ who never said a, a, a wrong thing. Who never did anything wrong. And not only he, he takes that cross, but He takes the penalty of your sin in that cross. The wrath of God against your sin has been now forever appeased. That through that cruel mean to be cursed upon the tree, the, the wrath of God is satisfied against your sin. It has to be. And Jesus has become your substitute. He took your place. Your sin was covered by His blood on the cross. Atonement means cover. And because of the one who dies, who is perfect, His sacrifice is acceptable to God. And the guilt in your heart is cleansed from your soul. It hides your sin as far as the east is from the west, from the side of this holy God. Because the obligation of your punishment was bore by Christ on Calvary. It was a, as if Jesus stood in the legal place of a sinner condemned to death like you and I. To bear the just punishment due to you. Because you transgressed this law. And the soul that sins must die. And in this way, that estrangement is removed. And peace with God is truly reestablished on the sole condition of you trusting 
in that sacrifice that not only he did it, that not only it really happened, but that he died for me. And now, therefore, I turn away from my sins and I turn toward Christ with expectation and hope that God, that Christ dies under God's judgment against my sin with the purpose, our text continues, to redeem you, to ransom you, to buy you back. And we saw this background of the word redeem in the Old Testament, you remember? When we went through the book of Ruth. And what does this redemption meant back then? He redeems us. Our text says, believers. He purchased our freedom. He rescues us from all, look at that, it continues, He redeems us from every lawless deed. That is why the reason of Jesus dying on the cross, for all your lawless deeds, do you realize that? That means that every time you sin, there has been the highest price in the world through the blood of His Son. And that should lead you, therefore, to be redeemed, to be set free now from all these lawless deeds, from all your iniquity. Not just forgiving of your sin, but even more possibly, He is rescuing you from your constant falling into sin if you are left to yourself, if you're still lost, if you're still slave of sin. When you come to Christ, this is no longer the norm. He has freed you from that slavery. To what? Our purpose of our text. To purify for Himself a special people for zealous for good works. That is the purpose of His redemption. To cleanse you to, so that you become a peculiar, a special people that is his own. It, becomes, it be, belongs to him. It gives you a special status now. As uh, chosen by God for his own possession. You belong to him and that means you belong to him alone. He's your Lord. If Christ died for you, what should be expected to see is a zeal for Righteousness for good works, for in, uh, an enthusiasm. Uh, in other words, you are eager to be totally committed to do what is right, to do what is good. That while when you did not know Christ, because that, that, that is the natural man, okay? I don't care if you say I, I'm a Christian, but if the natural man, you are swallowed up in various sins and hypocrisy. No, 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 no. You need to be radically changed. He needs to change your entire nature. He needs to make you eager now to obey Him. That is the beauty that it sets you in a zeal for doing good. What Christ did at the cross, and particularly here, His impending return, okay? He's coming back. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead, friends. And what should fuel our obedience is that He delivers you from the dark and rebellious life that you used to live before you knew Him. And now He positions you into a pure, good type of lifestyle in light of a pure eternity that you shall be coming there completely purified from all your lawlessness. I realize it's not a clear-cut line, but there is a trajectory in the child of God. 
there is a tendency, a propensity toward holiness. That is what God is preparing us for, an eternity. That's why the famous pastor John Piper once said this, Faith stands or falls on the truth that the future with God is more satisfying than the one promised by sin. Sin instead promises you a false future, a false pleasure, a future that ultimately sin cannot deliver. It only can deliver misery. What comes after sin? It's bitterness. It's estrangement with God. It's estrangement with people. It's brokenness in families. And ultimately, if it's not solved with, through that redemption, through that ransom, through that substitutionary atonement, there is a judgment in hell where all the rest of the hypocrites already are awaiting. And verse 15 now breaks the section and almost like a, a repeat, it goes back to verse 1. This, but as for you, speak these things. It's the same words of verse 1. Verse 15 wants to conclude... Remember, we started this with last time, with these last words, as for you. And now is another as for you, a final appeal to Titus. He is the preacher. And he needs to do these three things. He needs to declare or speak. And hearers of Titus are implied. I mean, he's teaching and preaching the word of God. And he needs to speak it, speak these things. Referring to the, all the instructions we saw last time to families to older and younger people in the church, to husbands and wives, all the way to workers, but chiefly to what we saw tonight, that this is the focus of the grace of God toward the past redemption and toward the future glory. It's what the Puritan Walter Marshall called the gospel mystery of sanctification, that the gospel does flow into Christian obedience. And there's two sides of uh, such method for, t- for Titus, of teaching and preaching as a pastor. The positive side there in verse 15 is to exhort. That means to encourage, to build up. And while this is an encouraging word, it's still a, there's still a certain urgency in this exhortation. But also the need of a negative, to rebuke, to reprove, to convict That friend means to express strong disapproval of someone's action that are not in tune with Christian obedience. And Titus is called to do that. That when when it's necessary, he must correct. And he must do so, look at that, with all authority. Full authority. And let no one despise you or disregard you. Or take your exhortation as like, eh, it's just his open opinion. That especially in terms of his teaching and pastoral role, no one is to look down at him. Now, Paul, for example, told people not to despise Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, as well as in Corinthians, because he was young. But what often happens is that with despising, with despising of the message, with despising of lawful leaders in the church, there's pride, there's rebellion, there's gossip. And there's every sort of compromises. And this is so because he, Titus, has every right to rebuke with all authority as a pastor. So no one should treat what he says as unimportant. Or no one should disregard what he says as if it's just his personal opinion. What What is to say 
is actually, we saw already with the false teachers, right? In chapter 1, the, 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 the graceless teachers. The false teachers in, says to Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, they were criticizing him this way. 2 Corinthians 10, his bodily presence, talking about Paul, he's weak. And his speech is contemptible. However, the opposite is true. Just like Richard Sibb says, we should not refuse gold from a dirty hand. Because if it's gold, it's gold, okay? And if it's the truth, that, that authority is not in Titus. That authority is in the scripture that Titus is preaching. And when you rebel to the scripture, you are rebelling against God. You're not despising a man. You're despising the scripture. Preachers must not avoid, therefore, to warn that when Christ will come again, he expects to find the church, his bride, awake and active. Ready for every good works. That's why Hebrews 10, 25 says this. He's talking about the church and he says, Exhort one another so much more as you see the day, referring to Christ's return, approaching. That the reason they are to exhort one another, the reason they are to admonish one another, the reason they are to be zealous in good works and to flee and renounce all sort of immorality is the second motivator in our sanctification. Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. Given the disarray that we saw in recent years on this very topic, like when Jesus comes back, no one wants to talk about it. I fear many Christians have become agnostic or indifferent to the reality that this present physical world will soon come to an end, okay? That just like in the day of Noah, people will go on with their life as if nothing happens and just Christ comes back. That this life, this earth, the things that you handle, the things that you do are only temporary. That this world is not all that there is. Friends, there are still huge tests and trials ahead of the true church of God, for which I fear the church is not prepared. I'm not now suggesting some sort of fanaticism or fascination with the end times that is divorced from, often divorced from our walk of righteousness, which is the opposite of what we see here. You see that? Just because Christ is coming back, therefore, I need to focus on the way and godliness. That is the opposite of many times people wanting to talk about the end times. But what Paul is saying here is that Christ's second coming produces a desire in you to live godly lives, to be prepared. I remember the story of this preacher who was telling about going into this town to preach. He takes his train, comes to the town, and arrives there. And the destination, he's at the train station, and his friend was supposed to come and pick him up. is not there. So there he goes into the streets. He doesn't know what to do. And so he goes into the streets. And guess what? He finds him uh, walking into the streets. And he, he stops him. And, hey, I'm here. And the friend completely shocked. I was not expecting you this week. I thought you were coming next week. There is a way in which many, when Jesus comes back, will be that man. Will have the same face. I was not expecting why? Because they're not sober-minded. They're not watching over themselves. Friends, as, as professing believers, we have someone to give an account for everything we're doing. We either have rewards to win or lose according to the way in which we have behaved in our Christian lives. Or worse, 
We have a greater judgment because we sat in church without truly possessing the grace that we claim to know. And friends, Jesus better not find you and me like those unwise, foolish virgin. You remember the story? They ran out of oil. And when the bridegroom came, they went to buy and then went back and knocked the door. Hey, open us. I don't know you. I don't know you. And so they remain outside. Or like the unfaithful servant, they start to beat each other or remain unforgiving toward other servants, which is referring to true Christians. Or maybe they bury their talents or even fail to work in the vineyard that they promised to go to work in the vineyard, but then they change their mind and they do not obey. So let me, let me also notice how we live in a context that despises today every form of authority. The way in which this text ends with with this emphasis on authority, is something that our society considers authority uh, always sinful and always wrong, whether in government, whether in the family, or even in the church. And I'm telling you, we must battle against such tendency. We must, we must make sure that our beliefs, obviously, are in tune with Scripture, because that's ultimately where our authority comes from. That is not yourself. That is not even your understanding of Scripture, if it's... If it's not really informed by all of Scripture, it's the truth of God's Word, the source of our authority. But if we are on step with this, what the Bible defines as, as what we call here as obedience, sanctification, then we're in trouble. And I know that preachers lose authority in their preaching when they fail to address this dimension. That Christ died... Not just so that you go to heaven, but he died to make you holy. They overemphasize this grace and they make Christians almost impotent to bring about the needed change in their lives. And why do they avoid it? Perhaps because they themselves are trapped in sin. I was told by some of you that there was this uh, hyper grace preacher that actually had been caught into adultery. And so in, in other words... Because of his present sin, he had to adjust, that's the blindness, the spiritual blindness. That you adjust the Word of God to your own sin. Instead of saying, the Word of God is calling out my sin and I need to repent of it. And this is, if I don't do, I will die. No, I adjust the Word of God to my lifestyle. Or maybe because they misunderstand the Bible on this point. The, the point is, the consequence, you have a bride, the church, that is not ready that is not pure to meet the bridegroom. Jesus is coming for a pure bride. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, yes, we are saved by grace through faith, not of good works. Absolutely. But that verse doesn't end there, does it? And that's the point of this verse 11 to 15. That we become His workmanship. That we are now created for good works. That when, when you really experience true grace... It thus leads you to genuine repentance, to a wholehearted obedience. That you live and walk in this world with the awareness of the absolute need to keep yourself unstained from sin. That when you are even exposed to sin in other people, let alone your own, you just have something inside that is craving and saying, this is disgusting. This is something I reject. That is the, the nature of the true Christian and when we sin, when that happens, because we, we will sin until heaven. But we turn away from it with genuine repentance. And also we look forward to the coming glory. 
anticipating being at the presence of Christ, anticipating our complete deliverance, even from the presence of sin. Can you imagine? There will be a day where, where, where sin will be no more. We'll be completely free from that. You anticipate the, the coming hope of a restoration of all things that now are broken by sin. That you're not only free from the condemnation of sin, but when you truly embrace God's grace, you become free and able, enabled by the Spirit not to sin. See that? You grow in Christ by being purified from the influence of sin in your life. This happens as your life and, and your deeds match the words and claims that you profess. Otherwise, all your claim and supposed authority is discredited. So let's, let's keep this balance of the biblical thin line that we see in our text. That we are saved by grace, yes, and not by good works. But that we are also saved by grace for or to the purpose of good works. Let us pray.